Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. Ah, yes, it is me here on the United Wecast Network. You can see me on FS1. You can also hear me on Fox Sports Radio. And you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Last I checked, it was number one among newly released basketball books. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one and find out why. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook type? We've got those versions as well. Support Parkinson's Recovery and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. And the reason that I always say primarily but not exclusively is for one of the topics that I want to hit in this episode. This is going to be a bit of a mishmash, and that is in part because I am prepping, I've heard from you, you are interested in having a daily, shorter podcast. I'm going to give that a go. So having multiple topics per week is something that I'm now going to have to pursue. And why not get started in this particular podcast? All right. So uh, the reason that uh, we're going outside of the NBA lines here very briefly, we the, the subject will pull us back in, I promise. But I heard... Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer the other day when he was asked about San Diego Padres shortstop all-star shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. hitting a home run off of him and celebrating with a bat flip and a few other histrionics and about celebrations in general by both pitchers and hitters and this is what Bauer had to say He's, he, he, he did the McGregor strut, he bat flipped, he closed one eye as he run the first. It, does that bother you, or is that just part of the personality that the game kind of seems to be missing a little bit? No, I want to I say something about that, because I think it's important. Um, you know, he did it in the first. I didn't see it, because I was paying attention to doing my job. And then he did it again when he homered off me again later in the game. Their dugout was doing it, um, and I, I like it. I think that pitchers who have that done to them and react by throwing at people 
or you know getting upset and hitting people or whatever I think uh, I think it's pretty soft um, if you give up a homer the guy should celebrate it you know he, it's hard to hit in the big leagues uh, so I'm all for it and I think it's it's important that you know the game moves in that direction and we stop throwing at people because they celebrated having some success on the field Another one of those moments today, I got uh, Hosmer on a, a curveball in the dirt and hit him with a sword celebration. And the next at bat, he hit a curveball in my face and gave me the sword celebration at first. And we kind of laughed about it, and we got a little history together. We played against each other for many years, and that's what it, that's what it is to be a competitor, you know? Like, I'm going to go at you, and I'm going to get you sometimes, and then you're, you're going to get me sometimes. So we can have fun, and we can celebrate it while we're still competing at the highest level. And uh, I just thought that was an important note tonight. Thank you, Trevor Bauer. I'm not happy that you left my Cincinnati Reds, but I'm certainly happy that you expressed that viewpoint when it comes to the unwritten rules of baseball. I've talked about this in the past on various radio shows, but look, the unwritten rules have been lost because of the loss of veteran players and the handing down of those unwritten rules and what the decorum is. And they've been taken completely out of context when it comes to baseball. One of the reasons why I believe that baseball is not uh, as popular as it still potentially could be uh, because it is very much tied into the way things were and the way things were were the best way things could possibly be. The reason I said I could bring this back to the NBA is because the NBA has a has a different problem. Uh, the NBA is not looking to players to police the antics or behavior of its own. It's looking to the referees to do that. And they've done it by trying to chloroform any sort of emotion or expression in the game. And something is being lost as a result of that there are times where players can jaw each other can go at each other can celebrate at each other and it's okay it doesn't mean that a fight is going to break out i maybe once upon a time back in the 90s and the 2000s when a lot of these rules and the approach of the officials was implemented it did lead to it, but largely because the game was so physical and there was a different mindset among players. There were still a healthy school of players who did not come up together through the AAU system. Now, like it or not, the players know each other and they have way too much at stake on and off the court to indulge in going at each other having full-out brawls on the court. It's, it's not happening. It's not in the mindset of the players today. That's where I feel as if the league has lost touch with who is playing their games. We appreciate when players go at each other on Twitter, on social media, in various other places, and yet we're afraid of that back and forth on the court. I just feel as if there's a flavor in the game. There's an understanding of the game that's being lost here because 
we, we're afraid that something's going to break out. And putting it in the hands of the referees is unfair to them as well. It doesn't allow them to cultivate relationships where they can talk to players. I've seen some of that more now than I have in a while, but I only see it with the veteran players. And unless you allow the younger players to develop that, then we're going to constantly have the rules and the referees and the whistles interjecting on the spirit and the competition and the results. And I just don't think that anybody ultimately wants that. But I applaud Trevor for saying what he said. Not easy to go against the grain of the frontier justice and the old school mentality when it comes to baseball. But when you really kind of take a step back and you look at it, people being uncertain about exactly what what defines too much celebration, who's being shown up. I got to throw at somebody else because your guy threw at one of our guys or one of your guys celebrated and now I got to take it out on somebody else. I guarantee you there, there are pitchers and players who are looking at it and they may feel some kind of way about like, I really don't want to back up my guy. <laughs> I, I know the rules of team camaraderie and the brotherhood and the sanctity of the clubhouse and the locker room and all that suggests that, you know, I just have to go down. I got to back my brother no matter what. Yeah. I don't know. At the, at the price of some other guy having an injury, getting knocked out, missing time, you can take that too far. And your guy, honestly, there's got to be guys. You probably have them at your work. They're like, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll back this guy up if I have to. But he kind of has it coming. Do I have to? If I have a choice, eh, I'm going to let that guy dangle. Because he, he needs to learn a lesson. So, onward. Let's get back to the game of basketball. And the one thing that I advertised that I was going to do this episode is talk about my view of Julius Randle with the New York Knicks. Got into it with a former radio co-host, Brandon Tierney, who's now on CBS in New York. I was on his show and I didn't think a whole lot of it. I knew based on BT's background and the way he posed the question sort of leading he wanted me to confirm or co-sign his belief that Julius Randle is now one of the top 20 players in the league and I wasn't willing to do that so then he asked me you know what were I think he asked me first before he gave his I kind of knew where where he had had Julius didn't know exactly he asked me how I would rank him and I said top 50 and I I knew that was going to be a lot lower than he wanted but honestly I was thinking somewhere between 30 and 50 did I say 50 just because I knew it would get a rise out of him I might have done that it's radio it's still a form of entertainment he obviously took great umbrage and tried to explain to him why I had that it's really off the cuff I wasn't anticipating that we were even going to talk about where Randall ranked among the best players in the game today. Any event, he then put out a tweet 
saying that I called him the 50th best player in the league, which is not exactly what I did. And so I started doing a little bit of research and homework and crunching names and numbers and came to the conclusion that Julius was somewhere between the 32nd and the 50th best player in the league. Now, even at 50, you're one of the top 25%. That's not bad. Obviously, for Knicks fans and Julius Randle being an all-star, they're expecting that he's going to be more than that. And this is one of the issues with Knicks fans in general. It's I imagine it's going to be the same issue with the team this year, is that as soon as they have a little bit of success, they go crazy with it. Slow down. Same goes with this team. This team has been a very pleasant surprise. That said, as I see it, they are operating, as most Tom Thibodeau teams do, pretty close to their level of ability. You do that night in and night out, you're going to have a decent regular season. That's long been the secret behind the San Antonio Spurs. The distinction is that when you play that way and you don't leave a whole lot of margin for improvement or you don't have the capability for improvement, when you get to the playoffs, you wind up being a disappointment because your record is better than what you ultimately or your seeding is not up to what you ultimately accomplish in the postseason. I don't know if I'd put the Milwaukee Bucks in that kind of category or not, but they've certainly, uh, their, their performance the last few years has reflected that. In any case, this is my warning to Knicks fans. Enjoy this. Enjoy Julius. Enjoy the Knicks' success. Just don't start to think we're the fourth seed and we could shock somebody and watch out. If you win around, that is wild success. If you don't, it's not a disappointment. This is building blocks. You're getting the opportunity with the number of young players that you have to see who really can play. And you can't really find that out unless you get into the playoffs. But the subject I want to hit hardest is Julius Randle. And this is just in general for all of you. Here's a little secret. If you're having a debate with someone about the ability of a player and they talk about the team's success, they don't really have an argument. For example, I've been told by not just Brandon, but a few people that Julius Randle is a top 20 player because the Knicks are the fourth-seeded team in the East and Randle is their best player. So how could he not be a top 20 player? It's almost a process of deduction or elimination. I mean, fourth-seeded team, best player, how could he not be among the 20 best? That's what we call circumstantial evidence. Yes, the Knicks are the fourth seed in the East. But realistically, they're the ninth or tenth best team in the league. They weren't even over 500 
until their recent nine-game winning streak. And I'm not discounting the winning streak. I'm just saying it's not as if they've been this juggernaut all year long. A similar argument is made for Rudy Gobert to be in the MVP conversation, simply because the Utah Jazz have the best record in the league and Donovan Mitchell is injured. If he wasn't, my guess is that the push would be for him. But it doesn't work that way. First, MVP can have a multitude of definitions. But one of the characteristics is that he is an offensive force. Very few players have won MVP when their biggest contribution is at the defensive end, and certainly no one in the last 30 years. Bill Russell won five MVP awards in the late 50s and early 60s and never averaged over 20 points a game. Of course, only three of his 13 seasons did he average less than 20 rebounds a game. Think about that. Uh, Wes Unsell won the 1969-1969 award for the Washington Bullets, averaging 13.8 points a game. Uh, Moses Malone won it three times, and you might not think of him as an offensive force because most of his shots came from within three feet of the basket, but he averaged 31 points one year. I, I just I can't think of a player who has won the award recently that hasn't been central to the team's offense, and Gobert is clearly not that. Now, I've also been told that Julius Randle is one of only three players averaging 20-plus points, 10-plus rebounds, and 5-plus assists. So, again, that kind of rare air, one of only three averaging those stats, has to be top 20, right? First of all, that's not true. Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, Nikola Jokic, and Russell Westbrook are all hitting those marks. And Demondis Sabonis has them too, if you round up his scoring average of 19.9 points a game. Second, and this is really important for anybody who's trotting out assists, uh, statistics, and I would again say for all of you out there, if you're ever debating with someone and they bring the statistics, the first thing you want to do is you want to look at how many minutes are they playing. Now, Randall happens to be leading the league in minutes played. Not a surprise in that he's playing for Tom Thibodeau. But that, he's, he's one of the few guys that when you go to uh, statistics uh, rated by 36 minutes uh, per game, his statistics actually go down. Here's my other question. Why are those meaningful marks? Why couldn't we make it 25-plus points, 5-plus rebounds, and 5-plus assists, or 7 rebounds, 7 assists, and 20-plus points. It's all arbitrary. And if we had those other marks, then Julius Randle wouldn't be in such rare company. In fact, he wouldn't even make those categories. Now, look, truth is, Julius is having a hell of a year. He is germane to the Knicks' success. And they've had a decent amount of it. Some guys I respect, Tim Legler being one, have raved about him and how they'd start a team with him over a lot of other guys, including Kyrie Irving. That, to me, is a different question. Randall's toughness and work ethic are intangibles that 
are extremely helpful when it comes to leading a team. But when someone asks me to name a top five or 10 or 20, I'm going largely on talent. Anthony Davis is an example. Talent-wise, he's top 10 in the league. Those of you who want to go top five or top three, you lose me pretty quickly. Top 10, top 15, I have no problem with. But he's clearly a number two type when it comes to leadership and playmaking. He's a guy you want to invite to your party, but you're not looking to him to host one. He'd run short on Mixer or the catering would be late or the DJ's sound system would be whack. He's, he's not that guy. You're not looking to go to his house because he's the party starter. You like him at your party because he can add something to it. Randall, well, you want him at your party. I don't know if he can start it. In fact, I don't think he can. And he isn't the only leader on that Knicks team. Derrick Rose certainly fits that. I'd put Taj Gibson in that category as well. And for all of the success they've had and the numbers that Randall is putting up, am I supposed to ignore that the Knicks are 18-7 and seven when Rose plays and they were 11-14 and 14 before he arrived and are 16-20 and 20 overall when they don't have him? Here's the problem, Knicks fans. I watch games, especially how they're won down the stretch. I don't look at the box score. I don't look at just who scored the most. I look at when they got their numbers. And this is what I can tell you. Tibbs gives Randall a healthy dose of post-ups at crunch time when it's a back-and-forth game. And Randall does an okay job, just an okay job, of scoring in those situations. But opposing teams do not double him. He does not strike fear in them. They'd rather live and die with his mid-range jumper or playmaking than leave someone else open. And he takes more mid-range shots than he does shots at the rim and three-pointers combined. That is not the modern-day version of the game. Yes, he's added a three-point shot. Yes, he's shooting 41%, doing a nice job there. Uh, virtually uh, 80% of them are assisted, so somebody else is creating that shot for him. It's an important distinction. But he's largely a mid-range guy, and he is below the league average in shooting twos, two-point shots. And he's dead average when it comes to true shooting percentage, which takes into account that gaudy three-point percentage and free throws. All that would be acceptable if he were an effective playmaker in the mid-post as well. Now, do we consider Giannis a good playmaker below the free throw, free throw line? I don't know about you. I do not. Improving? For sure. But he's not there yet. And yet, he and Julius are almost identical in their efficiency making plays. Giannis, of course... Terror in the open court, shot blocker, which Randall is not. 
And his effective shooting percentage and true shooting percentage are well above the league average, even though Randall shoots a better three ball by nearly 10%. All of this is why I can't help but feel, again, as I watch the Knicks play, that their depth and their versatility and Tibbs' expertise in utilizing that is at the heart of who they are, and it's a bigger factor than Randall's individual excellence. During their nine-game winning streak that I mentioned, Randall came up huge several times. 30-plus points, I think 40-plus once. But they got contributions from a lot of places. He wasn't good every game by any stretch. Uh, The bench in particular came up big time after time. Now, Randall's only missed one game, and that was a win over the shorthanded Bucks. So there's no direct proof of what they are without him, as there is, say, with D. Rose. I've just seen a lot of different players make significant contributions. Mitchell Robinson, before he got hurt, Nerlens Noel, have been awesome rim protectors. In fact, Nerlens, to me, is a very interesting story knowing a little bit about his background. He, he, he nearly worked his way out of the league for some off-the-court issues from what I've heard. And I don't, something's changed to the better. And I'm excited for him, and I love stories like that. I'd really like to find out what was the change because he's playing, and he's making a contribution. Derrick Rose, as I mentioned, Alfred Payton, R.J. Barrett, they've all been playmakers. Um, Barrett, Bullock, Rose, Alec Burks, Emmanuel Quickly, they've all been key scorers at various times. You want to say Randall's the Knicks MVP? Okay, I'm, I'm good there. But I don't see them completely handicapped if they lost him. They've got enough other pieces. Defensively, Taz Gibson and... Nerlens Noel. I'm not saying that any one of those guys can replace Randall, but they can get it from enough different places that I feel like they could cover his absence. He's not an, a matchup nightmare the way MVPs of teams with the Knicks kind, kind of record usually are. And keep in mind, they're 30, last I checked, they are 34 and 28, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe 36 and 28. I mean, it's not like they're blowing the roof off of the Eastern Conference or their record. They were, again, below 500 for the better part of this season up until the last few weeks when they went on this run. One other case I've heard is that Julius is going to be an all-NBA selection. Now, the all-NBA teams, there's three of them. Five players on each. Last I checked, you pick one center, two forwards, and two guards. All-Star has become more positionless. If I'm not mistaken, the all-NBA teams, I should know because I vote for it. <laughs> vote, I vote it every year. Uh, but uh, pretty certain that it's still remaining that it's two guards, two forwards, and a center. Obviously, Julius Julius would be in the forward category, and that might be the most competitive spot on 
uh, in the NBA because so many players fall into that category. Certain wings fall into it. Obviously, power forwards fall into it. And some of the best players in the game fall into it as point forwards. Now, there is a little bit of question this season in particular because if you look at rosters, LeBron James is listed as a point guard. Luka Doncic is listed as a point guard. Um, I think they were point forwards previously. I don't see a great distinction between the way Doncic is playing this year versus last year. Same goes with with LeBron. Um, But you still have Giannis, Kawhi, Paul George, Anthony Davis. Um, That's one, two, three, four. That's four guys right there. Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler. Uh, It fills up really quickly. So I'm not convinced that Julius, as great a season as he's had, is going to replicate his first-time All-Star selection by being a first-time All-NBA selection. Uh, now, I, I also mentioned in a Twitter post last week that I would explain why, precisely why, I have Julius ranked somewhere between 32nd and 50th among players in the league right now. So the first thing I did is I listed all the players that I'd put on a higher tier and then the ones that I would put on relatively the same tier and then the tier just below him. And I came up with a list of not 50, but 52 players. Now, obviously, ranking players who play different positions is impossible to get right. That's why, first of all, that's why I presented putting Julius somewhere between 32nd and 50th and why I went with the tier system. Because if you really put guys 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, you're going to get some ridiculous situations where somebody is ranked 12 spots lower than they should. I mean, take a, take one look at ESPN's annual player ranking for proof of how stupid that exercise can appear. So this is what I did. I'm not giving you like a list of 30 whatever players ahead of him. And you can call this unscientific if you want, but I couldn't come up with a better way of making my point. If we're if we're talking about Julius Randle's value and place in the league. When we say top 20, top 30, top 50. So this is what I did. I went down my list of 52 and I asked the simple question, would a team trade this player for Randall straight up? And these are the players that I got a hard no on. Kevin Durant, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Bradley Beal, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Luka Doncic, Damian Lillard, 
Ja Morant, Steph Curry, Zion Williamson, Brandon Ingram, De'Aaron Fox, Carl Anthony Towns, John Wall, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Jonas Valanciunas, Jamal Murray, DeAndre Ayton, Russell Westbrook, and Trey Young. That's 34 names. Now, you might disagree with one or two, and I'm okay with that. There are another dozen or so that I would put on a very similar tier to Julius. Maybe just a little ways below. Uh, and, and some of this obviously has to do with age and, as I said, position and role for a given team. But what it really comes down to is overall value. You, you may look at it and say, well, Luka Doncic, or I mean, uh, Julius Randle is, is better than Gilgis Alexander. Well, but not in value. You're, the, the Oklahoma City Thunder are not going to trade Gilgis Alexander to build around Julius Randle. They're just not. And if you don't know how good Gilgis Alexander is, you, you've been sleeping on, on the Thunder. He's legit. A uh, couple of the other, uh, Kyrie Irving, as I mentioned, Tim Legler took issue with from the leadership standpoint. All I'm telling you is the Brooklyn Nets or anybody else who had Kyrie Irving not trading him for Julius Randle. That's just not happening. Um, anyway, we could go we could go through this list and, and pick it apart. Bottom line is if you are trading one of these players, all of these players, the one thing they have in common is that right now they are cornerstones for their respective teams. Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, cornerstones. Bradley Beal, Donovan Mitchell, Jamal Murray, Jonas Valanciunas, as I mentioned, Gilgis Alexander, Carl Anthony Towns, they're all, they're all cornerstones. Would you trade that cornerstone to build around Julius Randle? The answer is no. And plenty of teams had the opportunity. Now, maybe Randle wasn't all that he's demonstrated he is with the Knicks. But again, I'm always a little bit leery when a guy's value suddenly goes up under a particular coach. Here's the other thing that you have to keep in mind. One additional factor. This is essentially a contract year for Randall. His contract next year is for $19 million, But only $4 million of it is guaranteed. And I am always wary of a player playing for a contract. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, one last thing I want to get to. Speaking of MVP and contracts and all that, if any of the voters, the MVP voters, saw Nikola Jokic in the final minutes of the Nuggets' two-point win over the Pelicans, 
a game in which they led by double digits with three minutes left. The Joker's lead in the MVP race might have taken a hit. It always tickles me when we talk about players being geniuses. And then they do things like this. The Nuggets are ahead. They're looking to burn clock. It's the final four or five minutes of the game. The ball is inbounded to Jokic, who, rather than immediately pick up the ball and start the game clock, hovered over it and let it roll toward midcourt, as if the Nuggets were behind, and he was looking to preserve every possible second. Now, Jokic normally is not in the position of having the ball inbounded to him and bringing it up, so I get that part. Kind of a new thing. And maybe somewhere in his brain, he'd seen point guards do that and thought, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. But it wasn't thinking about the game. And look, if that were his only faux pas, we could chalk it up to a momentary brain cramp, dude out of his element, whatever. But then on an inbounds near midcourt, with 9.9 seconds left and the Nuggets leading by two. They'd allowed their fat lead to dwindle to one possession. He inexplicably floats an inbounds pass way over Michael Porter Jr.'s head, creating an easy steal for the Pelicans. I have no idea what he was thinking. The meltdown would have been complete if his subsequent foul on Zion, who attempted a dunk, had been called. He, he scores the dunk, we go to overtime. Uh, Jokic was credited with a block to preserve the win instead. Now, Antonio Daniels, friend of mine, was calling the game for New Orleans, did his best to convince everyone he wasn't being a homer and saying that Zion was clearly fouled. He clearly was struggling to say... You, you have to call that. And I'm not being a homer and saying it. And I'm, I just, I'm here to say it's okay, Tone. The baseline camera showed it was clearly a foul. It wasn't your homer goggles that made it look like that way. Uh, now, a couple of other angles did make it look clean. So I understand why the referee, the trail referee and the slot referee didn't blow their whistle. But the base baseline ref had a look where he could have called it. Bottom line is, Jokic had more turnovers, two, in the final two minutes than he had points, one, or rebounds. Skadoosh, zero. Look, it's only one game, and I'm not in any way suggesting that Jokic shouldn't be MVP because of this one game. They still did win. But to me, it also gives you an idea of just how mediocre this MVP race is. I've seen plenty of MVPs miss shots or turn the ball over to lose games, but they were generally in acts of aggression. And Jokic's were not those. A combination of players missing games and uh, load management and everything else has really muddled this MVP race. I feel as if Jokic may win it, but he may may win it simply, again, by a process of elimination or deduction in that 
guys are going to be disqualified because they just didn't play enough or their teams didn't do as well. Uh, it's a mixed bag. And if Jokic wins it, I don't have a problem with it. But there's just a lot about this season. For all of the scoring and the histrionics, there's a lot of things about this season that feel subpar to me. Still exciting, still entertaining, and I'm looking forward to the playoffs for sure. Should be very exciting, interesting, and entertaining. But I'm not going to say that this has been the best basketball that I've ever witnessed. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball with me, Rick Buecher, on the United WeCast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned before, I want to get those ratings and reviews up. It means a lot to our sponsors. And I just look at some of the other podcasts out there, and I'm thinking... We deserve to be rated. We deserve to be reviewed. So if you agree, please help us out. Uh, Again, not sure where we're going in the next podcast. I had planned to talk in this one about Giannis being a more worthy MVP candidate this year in my mind than he has been in the previous two years when he's won it. And dive into the possibility that he doesn't win it simply because he won it the previous two years and nobody wants to put him in the rare category or I suspect not a lot of voters want to put him in the rare rare category of having won three in a row. Uh, Maybe we'll get to that in the next podcast. Maybe we won't because something else will arise. Or I'm going to begin the Monday through Friday shorter podcasts next week. Again, still might talk Giannis, but very likely something else may come up as well. We shall see. In any event, as always, thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 